Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Nurses know how to solve shit. Renegades. Why don't you start, introduce yourself, give us a, who are you, where are you from, tell us a little bit about your generic journey, and then we'll find some strings to pull. Okay. Well, I am a mature nurse of 42 years and didn't go to nursing school until after I had been married and had four children. So I started in nursing school when my twins were in kindergarten and it was hard work. And of course, I didn't just do the school part. I held a part-time job at the hospital in the physician's medical office. So I was working, having children, and very busy. My original type of thinking came from the fact that a long time ago, I moved to Washington, D.C. with my husband when we had one child and went to work for the FBI there. And as um, a clerical person in the FBI, you got to see a lot of information that was amazing. And a lot of things that amazed me were looking at evidence related to different types of crime to include violent crimes and blood splattering and all kinds of things to do with evidence. And that sort of really intrigued me a long time ago to be someone who likes to investigate, not just look at the surface of what you're seeing and determine what's underneath. I think the the most important piece of evidence I ever looked at while I was working there was Sirhan Sirhan's diary. He's the man who killed Robert F. Kennedy. And so part of the evidence procedural thing is you came to the desk with the, with the evidence and we logged it in and mm-hmm. took it back to the people that were going to handle the evidence. So it was fascinating work. And once I finished having four children, <laughs> I decided to go back to school and become a nurse. Now I felt like that little piece back there led me to a lot of different things in nursing to include risk management director of nursing, looking for that spot where you really belong, but never really figuring out, do I really belong here? Because my personality is such that when I determine that I've got it sort of covered, let's put it that way, you go into a new position in nursing and there's so many to pick from, it's awesome. But at the same time, once you get it down pat, it becomes a little boring, at least to me. So I was constantly looking for the place that I really belonged and was always left wanting. And I thought, I'll go back to school and get a bachelor's degree so I can get into administrative nursing. And that was a five-year foray into administrative nursing. And it was good. But at the same time, I also realized that the bottom line is always going to be the money and the budget. And the safety of patients and the safety of the staff would always be at risk unless you had somebody buying into the safety issues that are taking place even to this day in hospitals. So when I left that position, I was leaving a job for the first time where I didn't have another job to go to. I just made the decision. I was done. 
I was going to start a business of my own. This was back in 92, I think. And so I looked around for a way to start a business and use my risk management and found legal nursing as a means to make a living and utilize my background in risk management. So I started a business back then that I sold after 26 years of having that business to my son, actually. And many of the nurses that worked with me all those years are still with that business. And it's exciting to be able to look back and see that what you developed and what you established is still going forward because that doesn't happen all the time, you know, especially with downturns in the economy. And we certainly had our, our, our share of that at times. But that particular business led me to discover that I thrive on figuring out solutions that are not apparent. And when you're looking at records for what we call the red flag or the, the, the needle in the haystack that's not apparent, I found that I had a gift to do that. And it was something that I could teach others, but they also had to have an innate desire to look for things that they would not normally look for. I even developed a test to determine if nurses could do legal nursing. And if they got in the weeds with that test, what it told me is they were not focusing on what's, what's the missing ingredient and why are they not questioning? I actually said to one of you that we should call this question everything. Because when you question everything, you're not going to leave something unturned where you miss it if you just look at every detail. So I guess I'm a detailed uh, maniac of sorts, but I, I would find details that doctors who were reviewing cases would miss because they were too broad, looking at it too broadly. And I would be looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, were they overdo over the overload on fluids, for example, and in a <clears throat> seriously ill cardiac patient, that can be life or death when you have an overload of fluids. But when a doctor would look at a case like that, sometimes they were just looking at the intake and output. They were seeing, oh, this was in and that was out, but never giving consideration to the fact that it was too much fluid and that they were getting into trouble. And they did end in trouble, which ended on my desk as a legal nurse. So that's my story of starting with the legal nurse part. Now, way back in probably 2016, seems like a long time ago, I started helping patients in hospitals when they were not getting the kind of care or treatment that I felt they deserved. And it was nothing for me to just go in and start asking for things, including risk management to get involved. And I don't think most nurses think in those terms, but having worked in risk management and having worked in administration, I had no fear of getting people like risk management involved. You know, it was critical to me to get my patient what they needed. Was this, I'm sorry, go back for one second. Just mm -hmm. this was in, what year was this that you started doing this? 16. 2016 and was like a f another formal business entity you started or were you just volunteering I, or no I started uh, not charging 
a lot of them were family and friends. Uh-huh. And then what I discovered is I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And then I did go and attend the university in, in Tucson, Karen, Karen Marcineau's group. Yep. And I got through that in 2018. Okay. And before I finished, though, I did go ahead and sit for the exam to become BCPA. And I, I took a risk, I thought, by doing that prior to completion. But I didn't want to waste any more time. I'm, I'm one of these people, I guess you'd call me a driver personality. I don't have time to waste. So if I see something that I think I can do, I'll just charge ahead and do it for the most part. Can, can I really quickly take you, because you were talking about how you'd gotten involved in patient advocacy and how you brought in risk management. And I'm a little bit curious for you to talk about that as you continue with, you know, where you are today, just because I think it's important, especially for any nurse advocates listening to this, because my ears are kind of like, oh, wait, say more about that. Right. Well, what you have to do is overcome the fear of asking. Uh, Many times I think nurses uh, refrain from what I call stepping on toes, so to speak, or speaking on behalf of your patient in a way that indicates that they're not getting what they need. You know, they may try to go about that a different way, but sometimes I find just stating what I believe to be the truth. A good example was recently with a COVID patient hospitalized. He was a Filipino gentleman. And the first thing that came to my mind, he'd already been in the hospital over 40 days when I got involved with him. And the first thing that came to my mind, has anybody drawn a vitamin D level on this man? And as it turns out, nobody had drawn a vitamin D level, which his vitamin D level was 16, which is in the tank. How could he have ever fought off COVID? Now, this particular doctor that I asked to draw the level was an infectious disease. And when she realized, you know, I was there because he had the COVID and he was already on high flow, I think 40 at the time when I got involved, he's now getting ready to discharge this week. Finally, he's going to have some long hauler kind of problems, but a lot could have been possibly prevented had he not been in the tank with his vitamin D. Did she recognize that? No, she said, this has nothing to do with COVID. Uh, And I, I just have these ways of rephrasing things. I said to her, if this was your patient and he didn't have COVID and he has a vitamin D level of 16, would you treat that? And she said, well, of course. And so she marched out and wrote an order that was just unexcusable, really in the big scheme of things. She wrote him an order for 1000 IUs of vitamin D. That's like nothing. You might as well just not write the order. Might as well go out and lick your driveway. <laughs> right. But she already, she already had the, the little resentment that she picked up that I felt vitamin D was playing a role in his outcome, just in the way that I might have stated something to her. But, you know, the fact that she agreed to at least try to treat him was helpful. Mm-hmm. Now, other things took place in that case that helped him a lot. But I, I hesitate to go into it because, you know, as nurses, we have to adhere to our own license and our standards of practice. 
And I cannot tell families what to do when their loved ones are in the hospital. And I'm not going to tell them to do it or not do it. But the family got involved. Let's just put it that way. So how do you how do you handle that? Do you just educate? Like, do you just educate, educate, educate and let them make their own decisions? I put that family in in touch with nurse practitioner here who helps me with COVID treatment. And then he's the one who told them, you know, what he would suggest if he was able to treat this patient. And that there's where I left it. Mm. Mm. And it actually has worked out very nicely for the man. Unfortunately, he's one of the very few that I think it's worked out well for when you're that sick with COVID. When you say go to risk management back, mm-hmm. what is that? What? Because I don't, like, I know I, I've been around risk management, right? In the hospitals, all nurses have. We, we're at least exposed to it, even if we don't work in it. What does right. that mean for you as an advocate to go to risk management? Like that, you said that was one of the things. Mm-hmm. Well, that is usually my last resort, but if I'm getting nowhere with the physicians mm-hmm. involved in the case, if they're ignoring our questions or ignoring the patient, I will just call risk management at the hospital and request to speak to someone about a case in the hospital that I have some grave concerns about. I will say things like that. Because I think, yeah, concern. I think even as a nurse in the hospital, you could do that, right? You, you should be able to do that. But I have a feeling you might get fired these days if you did that, if you went over supervisory you know, steps. In other words, if you're in a hospital and your patient's not getting the treatment they need, you have to go through the steps of your supervisor and go to the doctor. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're lucky, somebody might listen. I guess if you want to take a risk of being heard and having some possible outcomes that you don't like, like, you know, I hate to say it right now. They're not treating nurses in the way that they deserve to be treated. Now. Uh, now. <laughs> like last, it's always been that way, but it's even worse. I think, yeah, at, you're right. At baseline. Can I do my pen thing? Because I see. <laughs> we got lots of pens all yeah. the time in our podcast. I want to <laughs> stick a pen in right where we're at. <laughs> and then come down and scoop some more soil and pile okay. it right back on where we are. Because I think. I already know where this one is going to be brilliant for people listening to it. And, and it starts with your title question, everything. Now we've only been speaking for, you know, almost 20 minutes and some things that are coming to my head is how did you know to do that? Can you teach that from the nurses you train? So question number one, have you always been, has your mind always worked that way? Question two, did you always have the courage to question, even if your mind worked that way? Did you keep, was there a time in your life where you kept yourself tamped down and didn't question? And if so, number three, what happened that gave you the courage to be disliked? So one is where you're always like that. Two is, uh, did your brain always work that way? Two, did you always speak your mind? And if not, what happened that allowed you to do it or even more? Well, uh, some of the people that know me really well tell me that I am the the most fearless person they know. In other words, I have 
no fear of people and what they think of me. Now, I think that that takes a while to develop. When you're in your 20s, you are, of course, more considerate and concerned about what people think about you. But even just getting out of nursing school at in my age group at 30 some, I was 35 when I got out of nursing school and I immediately got into trouble for speaking my mind on the floor, <laughs> you know, in the in the staff lounge when the doctor would come in and tell me, get out of my seat. A surgeon told me that one time and I said, doctor, there's plenty of other seat. He goes, that's my seat. And I said, well, I need to get my charting done because I can't go into overtime. And he went and reported me to my supervisor for refusing to give my seat up to him. We're talking years ago. So I was right out of nursing school causing chaos in the, in the staff lounge. You little rebel, I like you. Uh, well, you know, I just, I was a daredevil. Do you know what a daredevil is? Somebody yeah. dare you to do it, you'll do it. Our company's called our renegade. It's kind of, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, Andre knows that about me. Yeah. <laughs> I did a hand, yeah. I did a headstand on uh, a live feed once because she dared me. <laughs> uh oh, yeah. Well, daring to do something is what makes people, they're going to either succeed highly or they're going to fall down greatly or kill themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. But in my case, it has always worked to my benefit to approach everything in a fearless way. Because when I started a business, I had no idea how to sell anything, for example, much less my services. So I had to go out and put myself in a position where I'd never been and talk to people about what I had to sell as a nurse. But going back to the hospital setting, I recall one patient where I held back because the doctor had screamed at me when I called him. And it was a patient who'd had a TURP, really simple procedure. But when I was getting ready to leave my shift, he had run down the hallway, pulled out his catheter. He was confused. And so I got him back to bed, called the doctor. And I said, he needs to be seen right away. He's confused and he maybe threw a clot or something. And as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. And the doctor did not want to come into the hospital at one in the morning, which is about what time it was. So he said, well, I'm going to call ER and tell him to get up there and check him out. And he never did. He probably rolled over, went back to sleep. And the next day, the guy had stroked. And I remember not feeling that I had advocated hard enough or long enough. Or even I turned it over to the supervisor, the nursing supervisor, when I left, which is how you follow protocol, you know, in that setting. But I, I blamed myself for that man. And after that, I never held back. Mm. That was what I was getting at. So there was a seed was always there. Mm -hmm. The seed got planted in my very first year out of nursing school. <laughs> I, and, and one more follow-up. Um, is it that you don't feel fear or that you don't care? No, I would say to you, by the time you're 60, you don't care anymore. <laughs> so between now, from the time you're in your 40s, 50s to 60, you don't care what people think about you or if they think you're off base. 
if you feel the need that you need to advocate for someone as a nurse, then you shouldn't ever hold back and don't be afraid of what could happen next. Now that's easy to say for someone who maybe has other income besides their job, you know, because many people will hold back and toe the line to stay in the position they're in. And that includes administrative positions where things are unbearable. I always got to the point, if it was unbearable and I didn't want to show up for work, then I needed to be out of there. Rosie, do you, do you have any in your mind with your long history in, in nursing, do you have, what, what in your opinion is the antidote to that, to the, to the not speaking up to, you know, because you just said they, you know, people don't, mm. nurses don't speak up because they don't want to lose their job or they don't want, you know, and that silence in nursing is, is, you know, really, really pronounced right now, but it's always been a problem. Yeah. And can you imagine, Antra, how much she's seen? What, how many people, like, I mean, in legal nursing, mm -hmm. how many people that silence has injured or killed? Well, and that's why going into patient advocacy was the next role for me. I've been preparing it for a long time. Yeah. And when you look at the medical records where you see if this nurse would have just called the doctor and said he looks unusual or he's pale, pasty, no matter what the monitor's saying, you know, not using their, their just simple nursing skills. I just had a nurse the other day when I told her this man needs some bladder training. She said to me, an RN about out of nursing school three years. She'd never heard of bladder training, although she thought she might've read about it in nursing school. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning. I told her how to do it. <laughs> this, this man had had a catheter for like four months with his COVID illness. And they kept trying to just yank it and let him go on his own. Well, he needed bladder training. He was 91 years old. Mm. So I wrote it out. They they took it in, they put it on his chart and they did it. And he went home without that catheter. I couldn't believe it because they were having a terrible time trying to get him off that catheter. It's so simple. I know. I don't think education of nurses is where it needs to be. Oh, yeah. girl. So it's all the way back to that. They have lowered the standards of who they're going to let into nursing school to fill the seat, to fill the compensation coming into the college. I gave a presentation to uh, nursing instructors for the whole state of Arizona one time <clears throat> because we had nursing instructors being assaulted by nursing students here in this state. Why? Because the nursing instructors were not giving them uh, what they wanted. You know, they became entitled somewhere in the, I would say, let's see, this had to go back to 90. I gave that presentation in 1995. Do you know that the next year, two nursing instructors at the University of Arizona were killed by a nursing student because they, that he was being failed. And the bottom line was they were not running drug screens back then. This guy was drugged out in nursing school, drugged out and took it upon himself to kill two instructors down at ASU. I mean, it's just crazy. And they were afraid the day I was talking to them. 
And so I went to the basics. Are you screening these people? Are you doing a background check? Are you drug screening these people, including all the students coming in here applying? I don't think people should be able to come into nursing school smoking weed. I'm sorry. (laughs) Now, there probably are some changes there. Maybe they are all smoking weed. I don't know. (laughs) Because a lot has changed since I was in school. That's true. But but the back to the kind of antidote to the silence, you know, as a patient, having an advocate is one way, right? But in mm-hmm. the hospital, what is your, I want to know your opinion about what the antidote is for nurses to get the courage to speak up. Yeah. Or is there anything you've seen that has worked? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it, it seems like maybe some... Sp- it, it seems to me, because I have a story like you said, I felt like it was my fault. You know, like I could have prevented that if I had been louder. And I, I have a number of those. But with with your vast experience and seeing what goes wrong, mm-hmm. have you ever seen lots of those stories? I'm just throwing spaghetti against the wall because I really want to know what Andra's asking too. Like, is, do you think when people are flooded with, maybe they don't have their personal experiences like you did, but they're, they're flooded with things that went wrong because nurses didn't speak up and having that nugget of, ooh, you know, this is one of those things I heard about. Or is there anything that you've seen that has brought a nurse from silence to courage? Well, even when I've been with nurses, with patients, many times they'll confide in me that the upper echelon people are not listening to them. And I've encouraged them to go all the way to the top, no matter what the outcome. But of course, it always goes back to how badly they need their job, their position. They always feel like they could lose their job if they spoke too readily and too loudly to the wrong people. And I hate to say it, it's still out there. And I don't know I can't answer you that in a this, way. That's that, okay. Yeah, that's okay. I was just yeah. curious. I wish there, wish there was a solution. <clears throat> yeah, screening wish, nurses better. Maybe that should be part I, of the I personality wish, test. <laughs> I, th- I wish these nurses, when they're in nursing school, would have a course on how does a medical malpractice case come to be? And how can you find yourself sitting on a stand in a courtroom testifying on behalf of how you provided care to this patient or how you failed to provide care or failed to notify the right people that the patient was in trouble. Well, let's give that course right now, (laughs) (laughs) Professor Rosie. Well, that's one way to get their attention is to build in a little bit of fear about being involved in a case like that. Oh, can you imagine, Rosie, like in a in an operating room suite when an instrument gets left in a patient? Let me tell you how scary it is to hear about that. Like, right. you know, I, I can't even imagine sitting in a courtroom testifying, right? Like that's scary business. Yeah. And I was always so, on, I mean, I was kind of on edge about that at my job because it, you know, it was such a terrible outcome for the patient. Well, and you can always tell when a nurse is concerned about the care because their charting will change somewhat. Ah. It will look like they're trying to cover their trail. In other Ah. words, all the steps they've taken to notify or, you know, just to do the right thing with the patient. You'll see it in the charting sometimes right away. Now that does not mean in a courtroom, any of that's gonna stand, but 
it definitely does help them if their charting is in better shape. That's interesting. And of course, that's why we have electronic (laughs) charting now. You can't really do that kind of charting like you used to. And so what you get is all these check boxes that you Uh check everything. Who the hell knows whether you actually put your eye on the patient. That's so interesting. It's so true. I mean, that was my experience too. It's like check, 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 but you would never know whether they did it or not, or they had their eyes on the patient. I'll tell you a funny story about two nurses in a recovery room with my husband He had been in there and he kept having apnea and I went, they asked me to come back because he'd been in there in recovery for almost two hours and was having episodes where he would quit breathing. So I go back there and I sit down, they let me in because they courtesy wise knew I was a nurse. And so I just built a relationship with them. And the next time he was having pain, I noticed they were giving him fentanyl. And so I watched what happened. Within a few seconds, he would go into an apneic episode. So I thought, why are they using fentanyl for this pain when I think it probably could be managed by something less, I don't know. It just was an instinct thing. So they did it a second time and he had another episode. And I said to them right away, I think it's the the fentanyl. And the one nurse looked at the other nurse and she thought, she put her hand up like this and said, you know, I think respiratory said that. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, respiratory's already figured this out. And we laughed about it, but it was no laughing matter to watch your husband stop breathing. (laughs) I can tell you that. But they stopped the fentanyl. They started using, I don't know what it was. Was it? uh, I don't know. It was much less strength-wise. Might have been Demerol, but I doubt it because they're not using much Demerol anymore. But it was a lesser pain. And he stopped going into those apneic episodes. Now, he'd been doing that for an hour when they let me come back. Now, I don't know if they let me come back because they thought he was going to maybe die, code let me see him. And I have no idea why they did that. But, you know, after it was over, they both asked me questions about why I would question that drug. And I said, well, it's a dangerous drug. And he has sleep apnea to begin with. You know, to me, you don't give something like that to someone with sleep apnea to begin with. So they understood right away that you know, somebody helped save their butt that day, maybe, I don't know whether they understood it at the level that they should have. But I had plenty of cases that looked like that, Mm -hmm. where someone would not listen, or would just deny that it's happening. And then they code them and something else goes wrong. And before you know it, you have a legal case. It's just the way it was. Well, I mean, those are the critical thinking skills, right? That we hear Mm -hmm. and learn about in school and we talk about it in nursing ad nauseum. And yet you just said it happened. Those are the cases that go, you know, to court. Those are like, and that's, you know, just one example, right? A Mm -hmm. nurse who, who was like, well, why did you think it was the fentanyl? Well, (laughs) where are your critical nursing skills? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's easier for me to come on the outside in 
and totally. look at it. Right. And for them, who's been involved with it for an hour or so already. So, but it was still a problem, right? It, like, it is okay. a problem. Mm-hmm. It was still, he's not breathing. He's not everybody. I don't think everybody can think critically. No, I, I, it's not even thinking. It comes from the body. When you were talking about that, yeah. I remember being in ICU and mm-hmm. nothing was different on the, actually, I just had this, uh, I just had this experience with a patient recently. <laughs> we'll just say a patient who had a heart bypass. You were talking in the very beginning about the fluid overload. Right. Well, is a mild heart failure, but just had a quadruple bypass, a valve repair, a valve replacement, da, 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 and and the two days in the ICU still on a presser, extubated, you know, on room air, but still on a presser, couldn't get him off the sir, and they kept giving fluid and albumin and. And then I saw the patient later in the afternoon or the early evening, and now there's two liters of oxygen on, mm-hmm. and the CVP's gone from 10 to 18, mm-hmm. and there's agitation, and there's sadness, and it's like, this person's drowning. Like, this is fluid overload, you know, and right. nothing's being done. And so I started asking questions like, what's what's the H&H? Never, I didn't, you know, I figured they'd they would have transfused if it was low and it was it was eight hmm. and i'm like why hasn't this person gotten any blood hmm. well because our policy doesn't you know our protocol says uh only transfuse if they're less than eight i said or symptomatic hmm. i would say that two days in an ICU after heart surgery, still on a pressure kink, that, that's pretty symptomatic. And now yeah. this patient could have been, I mean, it didn't happen, but this patient could have easily had to be reintubated and then you're in an ICU and that's when you get the infections and that's when you have all the complications and whatever. But to, it's, to me, it's like a whole metaphor of what you're saying. It's just like a it's like when you're on a playground when, when you're a little girl and that Chinese jump rope, you know, and they're both going like this and you, you kind of stand on the outside and then you jump right. in at the right time. It's like right. that. It's not because you're watching for it. It's because you feel it, you know? Right. It's an instinctive thing, I believe. Uh, when I did a training for nurses to become legal works, yeah, their work legally, my friend Esther, a friend of mine and I, studied long and hard how do you get people to think critically and some of the research out there shows that you can teach some of that but it seems to be an innate kind of instinct that some people have for example i read an article one time and it said in an emergency room you want to have a doctor who's adhd (laughs) what Well, because he's not going to miss things. He's going to be all over it, but he's less likely to miss things than somebody who's just wandering through drinking coffee. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of the studies and research that were done out in California, California, they actually studied a lot of things about people in terms of how they think that way. And many, many things that came out of that study were that people who are musical tend to have higher levels of critical thinking. Now, how strange is that? 
but I started asking people, do you play a piano? Do you <laughs> play a yeah. flute? <laughs> Which I know that sounds strange, but almost all my friends that were very good legal nurse consultants, they all played piano or they sang in choirs. They were very musically inclined. Now, I don't know that that really stands up today. That was probably 20 years ago that I researched that, but it got to be a joke. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to come to work for me, you better tell her you play the piano. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. I could see like the difference and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Like you could have a good, technically a really good piano player. Right. But you don't feel it, you know, like they've memorized, they, they can play you know, by ear or, or maybe not even, maybe they've just memorized a thing and they know where their hands go and they know when to speed it up and slow it down and all that. But mm. then there's a piano player that might not even be as technically good, but you could, it's like the difference yeah. between Pavarotti and Carrera. Right. I don't know right. if you know, like two opera of the three, the three tenors, right? Pavarotti was mm -hmm. charming and his voice and it's just, but he felt, you could feel it. Carrera's, Carrera was like spot on, pointy. So technical. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's because maybe because you're you're feeling your way through the situation, something feels, and then you use your critical thinking to to pull that string or follow that line. Like the feeling, the intuition, the instinct comes first, and then the critical that thinking. That's an interesting um, kind of way to frame roles in nursing, if you think about mm -hmm. it, because there are some roles in nursing that would require the Carrera, is that his name? The yeah. technical you piece. Know, the real technical piece. That and, I would suck yeah. at. And then, <laughs> because I think, intu you know, we all have the ability to be intuitive, but to the point of this conversation, like, but the people who can kind of feel it and they recognize it, you know, oh, why are we giving this, you know, patient, this apneic patient fentanyl? Like, it's sort of an innovative way to, you know, talk about nursing roles when we have nurses in nursing school, because not everybody's going to be the feeling, obviously, right? We, we're not all the, the instinctual. I was very good in the OR, but it's very technical. It's very multitask, be able to fix five things at once. Like there's not, you know. Andre, that's freaking brilliant. We need to create a, uh, the three of us, we should, the three tenors, <laughs> we should, that would be such a, like you take a test, like Rosie's test, you know, or, or, or test is developed and you can't force anyone into a certain nursing specialty, but you could certainly right. go, these are your attributes. This, these right. are where you would do best, you know, shine. We, well, there isn't anything like that. The thing about nursing is there's such a broad field to pick from. And when I came out of nursing school, having had four children, I decided I would never work with children. <laughs> I just, I have my own. I don't need all that. <laughs> me too, Rosie. Me too. <laughs> yeah, and, and yet, guess where I ended up? The director of nursing for a children's psychiatric hospital. Wow. Wow. And it, did I want to be there? Well, it, the opportunity presented itself. I knew the, the CEO and he came to me personally and asked me if I would help him build the hospital further. It was a nonprofit at the time. So I stepped up to the plate and did something I said I would never do. What did you think yet, about that? What's that? What did you think about that role? 
Well, that role was amazing because at one point the CEO stepped down and I was acting CEO of this hospital doing things that I never dreamed I would be doing as a nurse, you know, looking at budgets and contracts and helping with all of that, that goes into running a hospital. So it actually gave me a better business sense of nursing and healthcare that I hadn't expected. So I believe that everywhere you've ever been was the gift that took you to the next level of where you're going, where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that Rascal Flat song. God bless a broken road. <laughs> this is true. This is true. You're so good. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, Rosie, can we? I, I don't want because I'm just. I could talk to you. We. I feel like we haven't even scratched yeah. the surface of the, the stuff I mean, that I. I Rosie's I such a good want storyteller. To I know that, but <laughs> the stuff that she has, her experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what I was going to say, but you can take it whenever, whatever direction you, you, either one of you. But this is what I want to know. So because okay. you you told us your background, and then and then uh, and then we stuck a pin in this and went back and ended up talking about the fear that keeps us silent and creates medical error and death. I mean, really, because people and and how you personally, because of what you did with uh, legal nursing and risk management, that you saw that you've seen it from so many different angles. So we kind of addressed the the fear piece, and then we kind of addressed the intuition personality piece. Are there like if you could do a course, you know, you talked about maybe it's just like I think people should do in nursing school. There should be a course. What would that look like, or is? Uh, how would you build out that course? I'm trying. Can you tell I'm trying to formulate a freaking question? <laughs> well, How would you build out that course or, and, or what do you think are some of the most important things that nurses should know that is not reinforced and not driven home about charting what they pay attention to? You know, what are some of the things, the egregious things? Like there's so many, like you could, you could talk about so many, I know. What are some like highlights or some really important things? Like if you had a soapbox to tell the whole world of nurses that you would tell them. Good, good question. I think for me, if I was going to teach some sort of course that would help nurses be able to protect their patients at the highest level possible is that I would do courses that involve case studies of medical malpractice cases. I want to take that one. Unless you actually walk through the case and you can finally see looking back where they fail to do due diligence and follow standards of care, that it's hard for them to just sit down and be told, oh, from a standpoint of preventing malpractice, you just need to document what you did for the patient who you notified, whatever you did. That's not enough. That's not enough. They have to become that patient's advocate, no matter what, even if they're having to go against their own hospital that they work for. Mm. That's the bottom line. Well, isn't that so, so interesting? I mean, I think from what I can see kind of online, there are some universities that have mm-hmm. some advocacy programs. I don't know specifically offhand if those are embedded into nursing school, but I never got that stuff. No. You know, and, and we are, I mean, that is the role of a nurse is to right. be a patient's right. advocate. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in nursing, if you're in the ER or the OR, or, you know, at the... <laughs> 
you know, in their home as a home health care nurse. So that, that's so like, I don't, to me, that seems very innovative. Like, why are we not having these courses and conversations in nursing school? Like that's, this? Yeah. Why don't they do a semester of that instead of care plans? Right. Oh, <laughs> I mean, right. Ditch I, the I, care I, plan. See ya. That's, yeah. I mean, we, we've all been through Karen Mercero's you mm -hmm. know, our inpatient advocacy course. And that's how we learned best to be advocates. Mm -hmm. What, what through case studies, here's a person. I mm -hmm. mean, she's had some doozies that are so good to teach with people who are left for, you know, vegetable, never going to recover. And then they're six months later taking cruises, mm -hmm. you know, because what was taught via the case study. Well, in the same way, what you're suggesting is brilliant. Like, it's a great way to teach critical thinking, you know, Carrera or Pavarotti, but it's a great way to jog the memory, like what it, what went wrong here. And then, and then you, when you see it again, mm -hmm. you pick it up. And even in nursing school, if you look around at your class of your peers, you can actually, if you have an intuitive sense about people, you can actually pick out the nurses in that room that you wouldn't, have a problem with taking care of you. Now, I can remember that we had one nurse who was straight A's, 100% through nursing school. But when she came into a room, the confusion that took place was always beyond belief. In other words, she had no instinctive ability to care for the patient. She had all this knowledge, straight A through school, but she couldn't seem to apply it. So how do you get someone like that? She ends up, in my opinion, in administration without being able to apply all of the things that she could have applied because she won't make it out on the floors or in the recovery room or ER or any of those places. But that's okay, right? Like, yeah, you know. that's where she needs to be apparently. <laughs> and, and she'll probably, and she would probably do a really good job in that role because probably. she does have the knowledge and she does have the, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, to me, you're getting into connecting with your patients. So as a leader in an administrative mm -hmm. role, you kind of have to be able to connect with other people, but still, yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. Well, that's just my thought from a long time ago that not everybody is cut out to do certain types of nursing jobs. Even though that's what they think they want to do, they come out and they, they spend a lot of years, some people like myself, trying to figure out where I fit in, what's right. my niche. Mm -hmm. And I figured out my niche was not in a hospital or a provider's office. My niche was best figuring out how people got injured so I could help do something about the injury, if nothing else some compensation that helped them live a better life for the time being. And um, also going into patient advocacy where I can make a difference, even though it's, it's a battleground. Every day it's a battleground. I hate to say it. In you what know, way? Fighting doctors. Like right now with all this COVID stuff, none of them want to treat. They certainly don't want to treat if it's a politically unthinkable thing. Mm -hmm. And you just have to figure out what to do next with people. I had a little lady that I admitted to the hospital, took her. Actually, I no, normally don't do this. She's not actually my client. She's a friend. 
And I took her to the ER and her oxygen level was 70 when I got her there. And she was denying that she had COVID. She said, I just have bronchitis. She told the doctor, little 87 year old. Now her husband had had COVID. I know she had COVID. <laughs> but then talking to the doctors, the immediately they wanted to give her remdesivir. Uh-oh. And remdesivir is not something I feel very good about anymore. At first, it seemed like a good treatment. They even gave it to Trump and he lived through it. But <laughs> they also gave it to my aunt and my, my cousin and they died. Okay. Both of them. Sorry. Wow. So it's about a 50-50 chance of that thing working. Now, on an 87-year-old, I would hesitate to say I wouldn't want it. But she had three doctors come in her room. And actually, to me, they were bullying her. Three doctors come in and say, you need to take this drug. You need to make a decision now. One of them came next to the bed, put her, his arm around her and said, I took it myself and I'm okay. I got over my COVID. And I'm like, what do you do with this picture? Well, first I was upset with myself for even letting her get into that hospital because they get compensated for that drug at 3000 a pop and the average dosing is around five. So we're talking $15,000 of income just to give that drug. And, you know, this little lady is feisty. She says, I think I'm going to ask that doctor, how much money will this hospital get if I die of COVID here? <laughs> oh my God. And I said, Hetty, I don't think that's a good way to approach it. <laughs> I want to know the answer to that too. <laughs> well, it, so, it's actually 40,000. So the thing is, is that as nurses, like, <laughs> In nursing school, we're all, we're t- I was taught, and this is, I graduated in 96, prevention, 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 right? right? Like, what are the things we can do as nurses to educate our patients about prevention so they don't go into the hospital to begin with? So now we're in this COVID situation, and there's all these early treatment protocols mm. that the hospital is seemingly not using. So. No. You know, it puts you, as a nurse, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, Rosie. Like, you go Mm -hmm. in there and you know that there's some early prevention, early stuff you can do. Vitamin D, like, right? Right off the bat, which is just, like, easy, cheap, like... Hello. And right. so I, that's frustrating. And, and it is a battlefield because how can you as a nurse advocate for your patient and do some of these things that we're taught to do as nurses when we just get shut down? Well, and it's, it's worse than it's ever been in my opinion, because of COVID mm-hmm. it used to be that you cooperated with your doctor and you came to a conclusion about your care and the doctor presented you with options, gave you information and you reviewed it, discussed it with your family and came to a conclusion. What doctors are doing today in this climate is they're waltzing in and telling the patient, you must take this med. And we're telling you that not only should you take it, it's critical that you make that decision right now, tonight. Now, this woman has a stent and she had a stroke in August. So what I said to her is they're under the gun because they can only give that medication a certain number of days. So what our, the way we're handling it is I've asked her, she's asked them, 
she wants a cardiologist to approve that medication for her. And she wants a lung doctor to approve it for her. She is not going to agree to that since she has a stent already and she's got asthma and COPD. So that's where we're at today. The doctors have agreed they're going to bring in the specialists, but if they don't get it in her today, I don't think they can push her anymore. So it's going to see whether the specialist gets called in in time or not. Do you feel like she, do you feel like she's informed? Like no, she's- I think what they're doing is, oh, I hesitated to say, but there's a theory here in Arizona and I believe that it's happening, um, especially to the elderly patient where they're not seen as relevant to recovering from COVID. They're even, they're even withholding things like fluids, nutrition, and I've seen it. And I'd like to say that I've never seen such a thing in my life, but untrue. And I had a 91-year-old who came into the ER with COVID. He's fully vaccinated. And the doctor told him he was going to do monoclonal antibodies right away. So he thought he was going to get monoclonal antibodies. As it turns out, the next thing he knows, they're telling him, pack up, you're going to be admitted to the hospital. And he said, what about the monoclonal antibodies? And they said, well, the, the charge doctor, the house doctor in charge is saying that you don't need them at your age. So he was sent upstairs where he proceeded to spend two and a half months in that hospital, bleeding and doing all kinds of weird things that they never figured out why. But the bottom line is to withhold monoclonal antibodies from that guy prolonged his recovery. I didn't think he was going to make it. Well, I know you have are still recovering from the Rona and we've gone over an hour, but I would like one more pearl from you. Sure. Just one more thing. If you could, you know, whatever comes to your mind with all your experience and what you've seen, you know, that, that soapbox again, you already gave, you already gave one, but what's another one? Like if, if you could give the whole nursing world, your last lecture before you leave the world of all the things like what would be something to me it would be if everybody knew this it's so simple this this is mine like something like this like it's so simple if everybody just knew to do this it would prevent so much or it would change everything or you know is there something like that well i think going back to what we talked about in terms of critical thinking when you're faced with a patient and they have presenting symptoms that would fall into what you think is going on, I think I would tell people always hesitate to believe what you're seeing and try to figure out if it's actually believable. I don't know, that sounds really crazy, but it's almost like don't trust what you see, but check it further go that extra mile to check it out. Can you give an example, like Um, an illustration? I've got too many. I've got too many. Okay, pick Um, five. Pick five. (laughs) Just one. Just a couple. I'll pick one. 75-year-old man with Lou Gehrig's disease goes in. His daughter tells him that 
he should go ahead and get a peg tube placed because he's starting to choke from the Lou Gehrig's disease. And while he does not want to be put on a ventilator, he does want to continue living at this point because he can still walk and talk and be with his family. So they go in to have the procedure done, a PEG2 placement. What they failed to assess, getting him set up in the GI lab at the hospital, was that he had lost an additional 30 pounds, I believe, from the time he had been there before. And that's based on a review of the records post-incident. The thing that happens next is they give him the Demerol and Versed and take him in and do the PEG tube placement. He comes out and it was supposed to be just a simple procedure. And now his oxygen keeps dropping in the 70s. And they keep saying to the daughter, it's not, it's not him, it's the monitor. So we're going to change out the monitor. And he's supposed to be having uh, conscious sedation, right? Well, conscious sedation, in my mind, is they're arousable. You can touch them, pinch them, talk to them. They're arousable. This daughter says not only was he not arousable, he was snoring. They had the oxygen. They had the nose leader for the oxygen in his mouth because his mouth was open. And he was not arousable. And the monitor kept going off in the 70s. So she calls for the doctor to come in and look at him. And he says, well, he has Lou Gehrig's disease. He's probably not going to make it because of how he's presenting right now. And you need to make a decision about whether or not he's a code arrest or full code or what. And this nurse who's looking at this patient also says, we can only do a full code arrest with him. And this woman asked, what is a, what is a, a procedure where you can rub his chest and try to get him to breathe till he can get over this conscious sedation? And that person did not know at all that there were two drugs that could have been used, Narcan and Romazicon. Romazicon reverses Versed, Narcan reverses the Demerol. They gave him one dose of, of Narcan and did not give him any Romazicon. And they told the family that they were going to transfer him to the floor so <clears throat> they could be with him when he passed away, which they did. As they were rolling him into the room, <clears throat> they flattened his bed and he was trying to breathe and sat up. They were running for a posy vest. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. they were running to get a posy vest because he's fighting them. Right. And then the daughter tells me that she heard him take his last breath. And she went into the room and held his hand while he passed away. Now, <clears throat> when you look at the records, nobody gave him any of those drugs except for one dose of Narcan. That was not enough. They had actually overdosed him with the Demerol and the... Based on a 30-pound higher weight. weight loss. And they hadn't even checked on him to see uh, had he been the same weight from the last time he'd been there. So it was a failure to assess. It was a failure to address side effects that were happening. And then to top it all off, 
he was starting to come around as he was dying, actually, very sad situation. That family filed a lawsuit in Albuquerque, New Mexico, against the hospital for failing to assess and failing to give him a correct dose that would have kept him out of such, because he could not be intubated, would not be intubated. So they lost their father that day. And that story is one that will never leave me, basically because that was my father. Rosie. Rosie. And I did the entire workup of the case myself. The trauma from that was for 18 months, I didn't sleep well because I was the one at his bedside. Oh my gosh. As it turns out, it gave me the courage to never hold back ever again. I did try to hold back. How old were you? How old was I? I was 58 approximately. Yeah. I have to think it happened a long time ago, but I will tell you that the best thing that came out of that is there is nobody walking down the road or into a patient's room that I am not going to hold back and say what I think about the situation because it can save lives. The other thing is I had not worked in nursing floors If I had known about the romazicon, you can believe I would have been screaming that word up and down the hallways. And that was a teaching hospital. They had no one except for the little interns running around like chickens with their head cut off, not knowing what to do in a teaching hospital. I just want to say two things real quick for the people listening to this. Number one, she looks like she's 58. And she said that that was a long time ago. And number two... We didn't plan that. <laughs> like that was, I, I'm like, I know I learned and I'm shocked and I'm like, so sad. It was you. And mm-hmm. that was, yeah. I don't know, like brilliant storytelling yeah. and teaching and yeah. like, but here's the deal that can happen to anybody. <sighs> yeah. That, that is something that can happen to anybody who doesn't know enough about nursing or what nursing should be doing. You know, they were wrong. Their monitor was correct. They, they switched it out once and it wouldn't correct itself. The only people they would let you talk to were the interns. And that's because in that hospital setting, the, ed- the educators who were the professors of medicine there did not come to the bedside and treat. They just kept sending in the little interns and residents in and out of the room. You know, Rosie, what I think is so compelling, I mean, oh my gosh, but Mm -hmm. so to me, like what you're pointing to is, is that we need as nurses to teach patients and their families to demand the standard of care. Mm-hmm. You know, to demand, like even just the basic standard of care. And I am so intrigued by, by that idea that like, if we can get the public to sort of champion for nurses by demanding that care, mm-hmm. then, then we're, we're going to be able to give better care to our patients. Because I, like you said, you know, you didn't, it, this was your father, 
right? And after that, you never, ever did not demand this, at least at the very least, the standard of care, right? But you, you know, we're nurses, like, don't we already know that? Don't we are, you know? Well, and come to find out, they could have done a sternal rub. Their policy said that they could. Yeah. But like, they denied that. Right. And, and you know, how, how is it that, you know, if nurses aren't demanding the standard of care, how do we teach the public to demand the standard of care? Well, you know, it's, <laughs> it's funny. I, in 1992, when I started RNG, I had this brilliant idea that I wanted to write a book and I've done books. I've actually done a lot of medical books with nursing courses, you know, and the bottom line is the book I thought of after my dad died, I wanted to call it staying alive in spite of your health care. <laughs> now that sounds like a John Travolta deal. <laughs> <laughs> in spite of your health care because can i steal that for the title for this podcast <laughs> i mean like the tagline question yeah. everything and then staying alive in spite of your health care <laughs> and i still have the start of that book sitting and be behind me here in one of my doors but i haven't had the time yeah someday i might have the time i'm too busy right now we could pull it. We could pull it out of you. I mean, seriously, you could do a book. I, I'm just riffing here for a second because I love your idea of case studies. Mm -hmm. I love how you present case studies. Mm -hmm. The one you just did was a real whopper. It was. I'll never forget that one. No. And you know those. I mean, I'm not telling you what to write in your book, but I would love to do case study courses with you for our renegade for nurses to learn from you know like where you present a case study and and people can you know buy the course for a ce okay we can put money well, in your pocket you know well you know i don't do it for money anymore <laughs> okay okay actually no yeah i mean even, even better we I, there's another conversation about a nurse we talked to yesterday who's mm -hmm. building an app and he's not getting anything, built it, learned to code, built the app, wanted to serve, wanted to give back. Uh, brilliant. Just yeah. so warm and oozes warmth and, and love. <laughs> not to be cliche, but he well, just love you. You know, when I tell that story about my father, it's only been in the last 10 years that it doesn't get me emotionally overwrought. Because when you experience something at that level, it changes you forever. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is the key to why I am not afraid to speak up. Because I've been through personal things, you know, that yeah. have affected me in a very deep way that, you know, so what if they don't like you? So what if they say you need to leave now? Oh, well, I'll be back. <laughs> That's how I look at it. That experience totally raises the floor of going through that. fear yeah yeah like what you'll tolerate because you're afraid you know because no because this could this is my baseline now this could happen again i never want to see this i never want to feel this it raises a ceiling on what you'll tolerate ever i know and you know i also had the experience of carrying my mother till she died of cancer in my home but because of my experience with my father's care, I stayed on top of that the whole time. And the doctors even said, 
she would have never lived two years, much less two months, if it wasn't for you staying on top of everything. Because even in the best hospitals in town, I can't tell you how many times things would happen that should not have happened. You know, or they bring medication that's not her medication. And you're like, what? Of course, this was before all the little scan barcodes we're talking yeah, well, about. That's we're talking 12 drive. years ago. That's yeah. just a big, strong message anyways, to stay out of the hospitals if you can. <laughs> yeah, know, Rosie, I really, really loved how your well, wealth of knowledge. I just, and you're just a really good storyteller. And so this was just such an interesting and informative and like, what a pleasure for me. So I, I want to call it like do a series called Fireside Chats with Rosie. You know, it's just, you feel like you want to just get a mug of tea and sit and listen to her. <laughs> but I really do. I feel like this was the beginning of a conversation, you know, and not the end. And uh, we're going to, if, if people want to get a hold of you i mean are you willing to ask questions or answer questions if nurses want to are curious about any of the the kinds of things that you've done in your career and they're curious about getting into those themselves or if they're looking for an advocate you doing did like how do you serve what do you do how can how do you help people <laughs> well i do whatever is expected of me in terms of what they need some people, like I'm taking on a new client today, right now his most pressing thing is he wants to know why the doctors aren't talking to each other and why they're not reading each other's notes and, you know, why is there all this confusion about my cancer? So I'm starting off with something I don't normally start off with. He wants, he's, he's a very technical thinking kind of financial man. So he wants a chronology of his care from back in May and he wants to be able to see at a glance all his care and who did what to him. And so that he can question other doctors as to why they're doing something else now. So he wants that knowledge and information. So I just accommodate them to what they need. Now, will I go do some other things with him? Absolutely. But that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be my starting point, but it's his. Yeah. So I respect where they're at. And as far as doing services for people, I always have at least two what I call karma pro bono cases going, which means they're not being charged at all. Mm. And I currently carry a caseload of about 20 right now. How? How do you do that? I have three, three consultant oh, nurses do. working yeah, with nice, me. Nice. <laughs> Although the COVID's taken a little toll on us lately, and then yeah. one of them wrecked her bike <laughs> so we've got a little shortage going on right now but we'll be okay by next week can can people reach out to you on your website if they have questions yeah. about your roles or you know absolutely okay and what is your website it is well you just can type this healthcarewithoutthehassle.com healthcarewithoutthehassle.com <laughs> i like that and there's Without the is T and T, H A S S L E dot com, healthcare without the hassle dot com. And Rose is there Jordan. is there a contact? Yeah, there's a contact page through there, okay. or they can contact me at Rosie, R O S I E at healthcare without the hassle dot com. 
I left it to a younger millennial to come up with that. It's, it's, it's a good one. Like I, met, I went along with it, but there are days when I wished it wasn't. So that's long. what browser histories are for. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Thank you so much, Rosie, for your time. Renegades.